Hi, I'm Ruthie Siders, one of the pastors here at Grace Chapel. In about a month, I will have been here six years, but in many ways I still feel new because there are so many of you that I have yet to meet and get to know. I still remember the Sunday Pastor Brian introduced me on the platform in Lexington. He said, she is a seasoned leader with decades of experience working with the next generation. Decades of experience. Well, if that didn't make me feel old, seeing his remarks in the teaching team notes of why he was asking me to preach this message sure did. He wrote, Ruthie, grief and loss, drawing on a lifetime of pastoring through both. Well, as much as I hate to admit it, Pastor Brian does have a point. And frankly, I give thanks to God for the incredible privilege it has been and continues to be because I don't think I'm done yet serving the local church. Even though, and maybe especially because, it's involved walking with people through grief and loss. For these are some of the most holy moments in ministry. As Scott mentioned in the intro, we are working through a series called Finite Disappointment, Infinite Hope, powerful words from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I've come to realize that the only way we can consider grief and loss to be finite is with the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. Well, it was four o'clock in the morning, Tuesday, June 1st, 2004, and I'd been sitting at her bedside in the hospital, holding her hand and watching reruns of MASH all night long. My brother had called me four days earlier to say she was refusing to eat and would I speak with the nurse. She says she wants to go home, which of course can't happen right now, the nurse said. I smiled to myself, thinking she does want to go home, home to be with my dad, home to be with Jesus. I confirmed with the nurse, no extraordinary measures. I told my brother, I'll be there Sunday afternoon. By the time I arrived Sunday, she was no longer communicative. Her internal organs were shutting down. Alzheimer's had stolen her memories. The doctor said we had about 48 hours left with her. My siblings and I all processed her impending death and our feelings differently, just as it should be. We all process grief and loss in our own way. My sister went home to plant some flowers. One brother went to fix his car and the other to a meeting. I sat by her side. I am very much the youngest of the four. The other three were out of the house by the time I was 10. About that same time was when my mom met Jesus and surrendered her life to him. I followed soon after making my commitment to Jesus at age 14. She was my first mentor and she was my best friend. So there was no other place I wanted to be. When the clock ticked past midnight, I got up and bent over to look into her eyes, which were staring blankly at the ceiling. Mom, it's June 1st. It's the first anniversary of my ordination as a pastor. You were there, remember? And as I stood there, smiling at her aged face, a tear trickled down her cheek. She could hear me. So I kept talking. Shocking, I know. I told her we were all together just hours earlier and we'll all be okay. We want her to go and be with the dad. It's okay, mom. Go see Jesus. 
He's waiting for you. And a few hours later, she was gone. A holy moment. A beautiful moment. A life well lived. And a transition made easier because of the sure and certain hope in the resurrection. The infinite hope of eternal life with God. Now, I've often reflected that I have no idea how people without a faith in a personal loving God make it through some of life's most difficult moments, especially when the grief or loss is so painful it leads us to cry out in anguish or even anger. As followers of Jesus, we at least have the confidence in knowing that someone is listening. We do not cry out into an empty abyss. God is with us. Jesus weeps with us. The Holy Spirit comforts us. Now the Gospel writers record several times when Jesus confronts grief and loss. So let's turn once again to the book of Luke, which we've been studying together all year. I'm reading from chapter 7, beginning at verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. Soon afterward. Now, words like that always make me want to look back and see what had just happened. So in the first 10 verses of this chapter, Luke is describing an encounter Jesus has with a Roman army officer. The officer sent others on his behalf to request healing for one of his servants, sending word to Jesus how, as an officer, he knows what it means to be under authority, as well as to have people under him who obey his orders. Well, Jesus was amazed at the faith that this Roman soldier was displaying. He was acknowledging that Jesus had the power and the authority and how with just a word he could heal the servant. So when those messengers returned, they found the servant healed. And so it's soon after this encounter that Jesus leaves Capernaum and enters a town called Nain. And it's no wonder a large crowd is following him. Now, as he approaches the town gate, a dead person is being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town went with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Let's freeze this scene in our minds for a moment. We have Jesus and his disciples with a large crowd following as they enter this village. And they come upon another large crowd surrounding what appears to be a funeral procession. A dead man is being carried on an open bier or framed mat. His mother walking nearby among the crowd and the town knows her to be a widow and this is her only son. And she is filled with grief. She has no one left to support her, to protect her. A woman in the ancient world was one of the most vulnerable of people. That is why God gave instructions throughout his scriptures for his people to care for the orphan and the widow. In the book of Ruth, we read of the woman Naomi, whose husband and two sons die, leaving her feeling as though God's abandoned her. But one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, stays with her as they travel back to Naomi's hometown. Ruth meets a distant relative of Naomi's deceased husband, and he takes on this role that was called a kinsman redeemer or a redeeming relative. 
This was an important role in Hebrew culture, a provision for caring for and redeeming or rescuing a widow. Now, God himself is identified as the Redeemer of Israel in one of King David's prayers recorded in 2 Samuel. David prays, How great you are, Sovereign Lord! There is no one like you, and there is no God but you. And we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth? God went out to redeem as a people for himself, whom you redeemed from Egypt. In Psalm 68, David writes of the Lord, a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows, is God in his holy dwelling. And in Psalm 146, we read words that foreshadow the work of Jesus, the coming Messiah and Redeemer. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. And the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Now we return to the scene in our mind's eye and we see Jesus, the healer, the redeemer, filled with compassion for this woman. This is not the only time we see Jesus having compassion at the moment of grief and loss. In John 11, we read the story of the sisters, Mary and Martha, whose brother Lazarus had died. As Jesus approaches the tomb in which they've laid Lazarus' body, John writes what is the shortest verse in the Bible, and for me, frankly, one of my most favorite. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. And the people watching Jesus responded with, see how he loved him. But I believe Jesus' tears in this moment are about so much more than his personal love and affection for his friend. Death was never a part of God's plan. Jesus was about to ransom the world from the grip of the evil one, remove the sting of death, and create the infinite hope we can have over the finite disappointments of grief and loss. I believe in this very moment at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus' heart aches for the centuries of pain and grief and despair and loss experienced by those he has come to redeem. And so it's this Jesus, filled with compassion, offers this grieving woman a word of comfort, and then he moves to the mat. Then he went up and touched the buyer. They were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, Dr. Luke uses a medical term to describe a sick patient finally being able to sit up in bed. It was not just a residual physical twitch that sometimes happens to a body after death. He notes that the son was able to speak, proof that he was truly alive. Jesus, the Redeemer, gives the woman back her son, rescuing her from the vulnerability of being left alone. Luke notes the reaction of the crowd. They were filled with awe and praised God. 
A great prophet has appeared among us, they said, and God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. A great prophet has appeared among us. The Hebrew people had two great prophets in their collective history who each had a similar experience of being used by God to raise a child from the dead. Elijah and Elisha each had the opportunity to bring back to life sons of women who had shown them hospitality by providing food and a place to stay in their travels as prophets of God. So with these two stories in their memory banks, the crowd has concluded that Jesus must be a similar prophet sent by God to help his people. What they will soon learn is that Jesus is more than a prophet. He is the very Son of God, the Messiah, come to more than just help us, but to redeem us and to give us a hope and a future. But not every story ends with life returning to the one who has died. Not every person lives a long, fruitful life and dies quietly in old age. Not every loss is redeemed by a happy ending, at least not on this side of heaven. Joseph Bailey, in his book, The View from a Hearse, writes of his own experience with the death of not one, but three of his sons. One at eight days old after a surgery, a second at age five from leukemia, and another at 18 after a sledding accident. He writes, of all deaths, that of a child is the most unnatural and hardest to bear. In Carl Jung's words, it is a period placed before the end of the sentence, sometimes when the sentence has hardly begun. During my first year here on staff, I had the opportunity to work with a bunch of very energetic and fun third to fifth grade girls on Wednesday nights. When one of the girls walked in and her mom introduced her to me, I knew she was going to be one of my favorites. Now, I know I'm not supposed to have favorites, but this little girl had the same name as my older daughter. Her name was Becca. On the week before Thanksgiving, we were talking about what we were thankful for. And the answers ranged from cats to friends to getting adopted to being healed of cancer. That last one was shared by Becca. She was about to reach her five years of remission from leukemia. And we all clapped and cheered and said how awesome that was. And then less than a year later, Becca's mom called me and said they were at Boston Children's Hospital. The cancer had returned. What followed were months of treatments, medications, a bone marrow transplant, infections, even a time of intubation when she needed a machine to breathe for her. I remember being in the ICU when her parents needed to go into the hall to speak to the doctors. And I just stood there alone, looking at this fragile little body. And I began to pray. Now, I mean, I had prayed before, but, but this was praying in earnest. I, I started at her head, and I prayed specifically for each part of her body that was affected, slowly making my way from the top of her head, over her face and her skin, to her heart and her lungs, 
her legs and her feet. And with tears streaming down my face, I prayed, fully believing that God had the power to heal her. Well, eventually, she was able to be extubated, and she was even able to come home. And we continued to be hopeful that healing was happening. And then the 5 a.m. phone call. And I heard the quiet voice of her mom, Kim. Little Becca has gone home to be with Jesus. I rushed to the hospital and found mom, dad, and older brother sitting with Becca's lifeless body. I had no words. We hugged. We cried. I let them talk. We sat in silence. It made no sense. She had just had her 13th birthday. She loved Jesus. She had so many dreams of what she wanted to do, what she thought God wanted her to do with her life. And we had prayed. I brought ashes on Ash Wednesday. We'd had communion on her hospital bed with Capri Sun juice packets and, and little coffee cakes. I'd anointed her with oil. Elders had prayed. Our pastors and staff had prayed. Many of you had prayed. So why didn't God answer? Or did he? Joe Bailey concludes his book with these words. What we declare in our words when praying for healing is our faith in God, not in healing. Then he goes on to tell this story. A friend of mine who died recently had prayed to God to heal him. He was convinced that God had answered and healed, yet after a brief remission, the illness returned with full and terrible force. And this could have been a devastating blow. But his final months after surgery and chemotherapy were not lived under any cloud. Instead, he was quietly confident, radiant with Christian hope. I prayed for healing, and God healed me, he explained. He didn't heal my body, but he healed my mind and spirit. He healed me of fear, of resentment, of bitterness, of worry for my family. This is God's answer to my prayer. I realized God answered our prayers for little Becca. While he did not heal her body, he healed her mind, her spirit. And he answered her deepest prayer that morning because she kept asking us, I want to see Jesus. Of all the memories I have of that day, one of the most significant ones that stands out for me was crying out to the Lord and holding the scriptures, holding Romans 8, 28, and firmly in my hand, holding it up to God, almost shaking it in his face. You said, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. Now, I believe that this is an often misunderstood and even misused verse. I've heard people quote it to mean that God's going to work everything out for good. If you just have enough faith, it's going to be okay. No. The text says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. 
in all things, in the good things, in the bad things, in the happy times, in the difficult times. God does not promise everything's going to be okay, but God promises not to waste our grief and suffering. Let me say that again. God promises not to waste our grief and suffering. God works in all things, redeeming, healing, reconciling. And so on my way home from the hospital that day, I cried out to God. I said, I am choosing with every fiber of my being to trust that you will redeem the death of this little girl. I know she's healed and I know she's whole and I know she's with you, but we grieve. So I'm going to hold you to your promise. What good are you going to bring from this? In the two years since Becca's death, there have been beautiful moments of seeing how her young life touched so many. I've also seen the blessing her mom and dad and brother have been to others. For any of you who happened to drive through our Christmas Live Nativity in Lexington, well, they were the people portraying Mary, Joseph, and the angel Gabriel. Not that I've ever heard anyone say Timmy was an angel, but that night he was. And Kim, Becca's mom, was Mary, holding one of Becca's favorite dolls as the baby Jesus. Earlier this week, I received an email from a family that only recently experienced a death in their family. Lee had written first to Pastor Brian, describing the death of her husband. As you can imagine, I am in deep grief. Richard's illness, pancreatic tumor, came on very quickly. Three weeks before he died, he was decorating our Christmas tree. After he began feeling some digestive issues, our doctor ordered some tests, one of which was supposed to happen Christmas Eve day. When I brought him to the hospital for the test, they admitted him due to his coloring, jaundice. On Christmas Eve, a surgeon called me to tell me how bad the tumor was that had invaded his liver. It was a horrible six days of not being able to visit him due to COVID restrictions. When we finally brought him home to our daughter Laura's with hospice, he was able to see all of his family and say goodbye before he passed with all of us there one day later. We are so grateful he didn't suffer for very long, but there was hardly enough time to absorb the reality of what was happening. I know he's with Jesus and much happier than all of us. He was so loved by so many who are also suffering today. I am so grateful for all the prayers and support I'm receiving. I'm in a whole new world that feels really scary but I know that the Lord is leading and protecting me as he has throughout my life. So when Pastor Brian shared this note with me, knowing I was preparing this message, I took the liberty to write and ask permission to share her story. This was part of her reply. I would be honored if you shared any or all of what I wrote to Brian, if it fits with what you're preaching. Thank you for reaching out to me. Though we haven't formally met, I know you were a great comfort to the Sampsons during Becca's illness. In fact, Kim was one of the first people to show up at my daughter's house 
the day after Richard died to give comfort and encouragement to our family. I'm learning so much about this thing called grief and so grateful for all the love and support God has provided. Mostly what I need is hope that I will survive and feel somewhat normal again. For that, I find I must live in the moment and not think too far ahead, which is difficult for someone like me who has always been a planner. Kim, a mom still learning to live with her own loss, filled with compassion, was used by God to bring comfort to another family in grief. Yes, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So what do we do with our grief and loss when there is no good explanation, when we find it hard to see God's hand at work, when it just doesn't seem fair? How do we move from disappointment to hope? Well, first I wanna share what not to do. In the book, When Children Grieve, by John James and Russell Friedman, they name six myths about experiencing grief and loss. Myth number one, don't feel bad. Really? I tell people all the time, feel what you feel. And don't be surprised if it feels like you're taking one step forward and two steps back. You never know what will trigger your feelings. It's not a matter of, of getting over the feelings as, is, as it is like riding a wave. And sometimes you, you just have to ride it out. And there's a calm before the next one comes. Myth number two, replace the loss. Whatever the loss is in your life, quickly replacing it with something else will not give you the space you need to process the loss and heal enough so you can move forward. Myth number three, grieve alone. Friends, do not try to go through your grief or loss alone. Invite trusted friends and family to walk through this journey with you. Realize that weeks and months and even years after the loss, you may need to call on those friends again to come alongside you and to give you the gift of their presence. Myth number four, be strong. No one expects you to be strong. It's okay to weep and to cry to get mad at God. Joe Bailey writes, realistic handling of grief probably begins with honest expression of feelings. Tears are valid and helpful for adults as well as children, men as well as women. Myth number five, keep busy. Well, you can try to fill the emptiness left by the loss in your life by filling up with work, projects, activities, and chores. But when all that is done, you will find that that empty void is still there. The feelings may have been buried, but they are not gone. Create the space you need to heal. Myth number six, time heals all wounds. I've been told that can be one of the worst things to say to someone dealing with grief. Some losses are so deep, the wounds remain. But here's where we trust that in God's economy of time, even the deepest grief and disappointment is indeed finite. 
because we are eternal beings with an eternal destiny because of the sure and certain hope we have in the resurrection power of God. Friends, we have all experienced some level of grief and loss just in the last year, some much more than others. Our lives have all been impacted by the coronavirus. According to a CNBC report, one-third of all Americans now know someone who has died due to the virus. Our communities have been impacted with, with social unrest and job loss. Our country has been rocked by a loss of trust in our leaders and a search for truth over lies. And it's easy to think that these circumstances will never end. But we can handle grief and loss because we serve a God who knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to see a lie ruin something good. To have those he loves turn away and hide from him. To have the beautiful world he created be abused. To have his one and only son be falsely accused and put to death. So he comes to us in our despair and he weeps with us, sits in the silence with us, listens to our cries and reminds us there is reason to hope. So how do you begin to heal amid grief and loss? I begin by going to the scripture. I use the words of the Psalms to cry out for me when I have no words. To put my trust in God when I don't feel his presence. To show me that I have a reason for hope even when everything else around me says there's none. So as I close, I invite you to name the loss. Acknowledge your grief and allow the Holy Spirit to wrap his arms of love around you, reminding you you are not alone. Sit comfortably, place your hands, palms up on your laps, and receive these words of comfort and hope. From Psalm 23, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 25, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Psalm 30. Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Psalm 31. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. 
Well, people say to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Dr. King said it so well. We must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Grief and loss are finite, but they are a part of our life and we must accept them. But we are not alone. As followers of Jesus, we can be confident that healing will come. Hope is infinite. It is a sure and certain hope. Thanks be to God. Amen.